This is Dear Analyst, episode number 21. And today I'm going to recap the, the talk I gave at the Webflow No-Code Conference a few days ago. I was in San Francisco and spoke at Webflow's very first conference dedicated to the no-code and low-code movement. And I presented about building no-code tools and applications from spreadsheets. I'll post the slides in the show notes, but I'm gonna go through slide by slide uh, what I spoke at during the conference. And of course you can't see my slides, but the story is pretty much the same. And let's begin. So I started off by actually telling a story about how I first got into becoming addicted to spreadsheets after going to an event called Modeloff. And for those of you who have been reading my blog. You've probably seen I've posted many blog posts about Modeloff in the last couple of years. Modeloff is an international financial modeling competition. Uh, it's usually hosted at Microsoft's office and there's multiple rounds to the event and it's all about building financial models and writing formulas and all that good stuff. So I, I tell a story about how, well, I told a story about how I went to model off for the very first time in 2013. And I was, didn't know anybody. So I started talking to this guy there and let's just call it this guy, Bob. And I said, Bob, what brings you here? And he told me that he knew an older woman who used to work in customer support and she would have to create and aggregate reports in Excel and it would take her a few hours every night to create this report before she sent it off to her, her manager. And he took a look at the report and said, you know what, I can probably help you with this report. I can probably streamline a few things, write a few formulas, so it can take you less time to create the report. And so she took his updated spreadsheet, started using it. A few days later, he came back to Bob and said, hey, Bob, you've saved me so many hours a week now. I can spend more time with my family and I feel more empowered at work. And as Bob was telling me this story about this woman and her report, tears started coming down his face. And that's when he realized he was going to commit himself to a career in building solutions for people in spreadsheets because she saw how he saw how it could change just one woman's life. And that's also when I realized that this tool I've been using for the last five years at the time was more than just a tool. It was a way to really change people's work and their lives. And that's kind of the intro I gave at the at the start of the conference. I kind of walked through my background about how I used to be I used to work as a financial analyst and I start, started indie hacking and consulting and teaching Excel and now that I build now I build solutions at Coda. Show a quick picture of Modeloff in 2013 which you can see in the slides. And then I also start I posted a a message from a Slack workspace I'm a part of that consists of mostly engineering and tech leaders. And I posted about Excel and in that message, people started commenting and saying how national security systems are built on top of Excel, which is kind of scary, but also seems realistic. <laughs> then I get into the themes of my talk. The number one theme from my experience building in spreadsheets is number one, whatever tool or platform you choose to build on should really challenge your beliefs about building applications and tools. 
Number two, um, a little bit more controversial, is that the tech behind no-code platforms is not all that revolutionary as it may seem. And as a corollary to that, the community of people who are using the platform will always be more important than the platform itself. I then show a screenshot of a regular financial model that I typically would build when I was working in finance. You just you forecast out a bunch of expenses and revenue. But as I started playing more with Excel formulas and getting more advanced, I realized that I could use these formulas to create little tools in, in spreadsheets. And these tools would be used more than once, require other people to input data, and would provide similar functionality as software applications. This is in contrast to regular financial models, which typically are used once or twice. You might adjust some variables here and there, but they're kind of like ad hoc analyses that you don't consistently use as a tool. I show a spreadsheet, a Google Sheet that I built several years ago for my friend who was planning a bachelorette party. And the bachelorette party Google Sheet simply has dates along the top and then names along the left-hand side. It was a Google Sheet she used to figure out which weekend she should hold her bachelorette party. If I step back and look at this Google Sheet, I see that there's a database of names and dates. The user input is the yeses and nos and maybes that people put into the spreadsheet of when they can make a certain date. And then the calculations is displayed at the very bottom, which is a bunch of counted formulas, which basically helps you figure out which weekend or which date had the most number of yeses, nos, and maybes from all your friends. There's a variety of bachelorette party planning apps that you can buy and download from the app store or online. But for some reason, my friends still love using this spreadsheet. And why is that? So I dug into that a little bit further in the slides. Another example is the splitting cost with friends tool that I built in 2014. And this is also on my blog. And it's a simple tool that allows you to keep track of what of all the expenses you've incurred during like a road trip and then how you can split them at the very end. And to this day, this blog post still continues to receive several hundred hits per week from people basically searching on Google. I think it's like the number four search result if you look for splitting costs or splitting expenses with friends. But this Google Sheet is really simply just a database of costs, the name of the cost, and people in the during the trip. The user input is a bunch of ones and zeros that that indicate whether or not that person participated in the cost. And then the calculations display at the very bottom, which is a bunch of some if and some product formulas to basically figure out who owes what at the end of the trip. There are a variety of expense splitting apps that you can download to do the same exact thing as my Google Sheet. But this is the first time I've seen where a Google Sheet is no longer just used to keep track of forecasts, but it's a multiplayer application that can be used multiple times throughout the weeks and months. And so far we've seen how these Google Sheets and tools can potentially replace some software applications. But in this, in this next example, I wanted to show you why you should rethink the tools you use to build a certain solution. So this is more of a business scenario where I had the chance to work with an addiction recovery center in Texas, and they wanted a really basic CRM tool that would allow them to keep track of all the people that were signing up to basically be a part of the recovery center. 
and they wanted to be able to copy names from one sheet to another one automatically based on whether or not they admitted that patient to the recovery center. So it starts with this really ugly cover sheet that you shouldn't be doing in Excel because Excel is not meant to be writing words and letters. There's one sheet that just lists all the names of people who are applying to go to the recovery center. And if that person is admitted, there is a big submit button at the very top of the sheet where if you click on it, it automatically copies names from the first sheet to another sheet using macros. And this is all automated. And the secret sauce behind this submit button is VBA, which is not a groundbreaking technology. It came out in the early 90s. And it allows you to write a little bit of code, but you can step step through line by line every single part of the code and it sh you can see how that code affects the spreadsheet in real time. So it's kind of like a little bit of visual programming. And I told my client that this is the CRM tool that I built. It's not the best solution because this code is very buggy. It, can, it might break if you input data wrong in the first sheet, but that's what they wanted. So that's what I delivered to them. But I told them there are other tools that are probably more suitable for this type of use case. And so this led me to one realization that just because I can build it in a spreadsheet doesn't mean I should. And I show an image of a Japanese artist from Japan named Tatsuo Horiuchi. He's, he, was, he didn't want to pay for expensive paint and paintbrushes, so he picked up Excel to create these really ornate paintings using vectors and obviously colors. And he... It's obviously not the use case for Excel, but it is possible giving, given Excel's flexibility. So the first theme I talked about was that the tool or no-code platform that you pick should really challenge your beliefs about building apps and tools. A lot of features in spreadsheets are really hard for the beginner. You have filtering and aggregating data, lookups, macros, charts, and no-code platforms will abstract this so it's, it's easier for a beginner to pick up. So databases are abstracted. Buttons and dropdowns allow the user to pick something and change data in another part of the spreadsheet or the app. If this, then that, and Zapier help you automate a lot of tasks. And then also you can create much prettier user interfaces in no-code platforms compared to just simple charts in Excel. And I used to think that what I could do to manipulate data was constrained to the Excel formulas that I knew and love, but I realized that there's these no-code platforms give you the ability to manipulate data in new ways that I didn't even think were possible. And we're starting to see the convergence of spreadsheets and applications come together. And spreadsheets are, again, again are not the best platform to build on top of. I then show a screenshot of Coda and how, what if you could reimagine the building blocks of manipulating data using visualizing data and putting together them all, putting together all these building blocks into a doc that mixes tables, buttons, and, and data all together. The second point I talk about is that the tech behind many no-code platforms is not that revolutionary. There was a blog post on the Webflow blog a couple of weeks ago by Jeff Cardello, and it talked about the history of grids and how grids, the grid system has been around since ancient times from books to advertisements to modern day websites. And if you consider Excel a no-code platform, it's also built on the grid system. VisiCalc back in 1978, Multiplan 1982, Lotus 123 in 1983, 
and Excel 1.0 in 1985, all built on this grid system of columns and rows. And 40 years later, we're still using Google Sheets and Excel, and it's still using this paradigm of columns and rows that's been around for more than, well, now close to 50 years. And if you think about it, a lot of no-code platforms are trying to take aspects of Excel and spreadsheets and putting their own little twist, their own little kind of sauce on top of things, but they're still building on top of the shoulders of giants, which is spreadsheets. And despite all its shortcomings, spreadsheets are still the most accessible. It's already on everyone's computer, and it just does a few things really, really well. And I showed this quote I actually pulled from a Hacker News thread about why Microsoft Access will never die. And it talks about how the ultimate goal that we should never forget is to make it easy for our users to do their job. And this quote talks about how many IT solutions tend to complicate things and the best solution, the best tool will always be the one that allows the user to do their job without requiring IT to get involved. The final theme is that the community of users using the platform will always be more important than the platform itself. And when I think back to some of the earliest communities that pushed computing and software forward, the Tech Model Railroad Club, which I've talked about before from the book Hackers, in the 1940s, they really took they took these huge, bulky, like thousand pound machines and made them do really crazy things like play chess. Then you had the Homebrew Computer Club in the 70s, that where Apple became famous. You have this this group of engineering leaders that met in Snowbird, Utah, in 2001, that created the who created the Agile Manifesto, and that manifesto now underpins a lot of how we currently launch products and run sprint planning, and even in some products, um, how they think about building other products. And then fast forward to 2013, you have a group of Excel nerds coming together to compete on who can write the formulas the fastest. And what I love about this community and why I continue to stay involved is hearing and reading about the stories from people on how they're using Excel, this tool that we've been using for the last 40, 50 years, to change people's lives and work. And that's what really keeps Excel alive is the community. And today, um, the community at Coda, I was actually a very active member of the community prior to joining the company. And I saw firsthand how people wanted to help each other, answered questions, and more importantly, the community challenged my beliefs about what's possible in terms of building tools and applications for myself and for my team. And the community was actually one of the main reasons I decided to join Coda full-time. So to recap the, the talk, I mentioned the three themes again, challenging your beliefs about building apps and tools. The tech behind no-code platforms is not revolutionary, and the community will always be greater than the platform itself. And that's kind of the reason why everyone was at the conference is because of the no-code community. And so that's kind of how I ended my presentation and just kind of made a call at the very end that if anyone wants to build an app or tool, they can contact me. And that was the talk. And I think it went over okay. I think most people afterwards just considered me to be the spreadsheet guy, uh, which is fine. I, I think I've build most of my career using spreadsheets and helping people with their spreadsheets. So it's totally fine. Um, but the other talks I listened to at the conference were pretty awesome too. 
some of them were very high level. Some of them were more technical. I think it was a really good variety of talks. And it was really just interesting to hear what others have to say about the no-code movement. Um, even though I don't consider myself to be a no-coder per se, I think many things that I've done in the past really um, speak to the no-code like spirit or movement. Um, and yeah, it was a really, really interesting conference and really looking forward to uh, stay in touch with all the people I met. So a few episodes I want to talk about that I listened to recently on other podcasts that really caught my attention. Number one is actually very related to what I just talked about in terms of my talk at the No Code Conference is the Future of Coding podcast. And this one is with, uh, this one, this episode is called Unveiling Dark, Ellen Chiza and Paul Bigar. And I'm not sure if it's bigger or bigger, um, but around mi- around minutes one hour and fifty, uh, Paul starts talking about how no code tools are great for design related design related problems. I think they're actually talking about Webflow and how Webflow could be is a great replacement for writing code because. It's kind of a drag and it's a drag and drop editor, of course, and you can drag and drop elements for to create some really visually appealing websites. Um, he did talk about how Excel could be considered a no code platform, but behind all the formulas and all the pivot tables, there are really a lot of code to make things work. And I think what happened during this conversation um, in this podcast is that. Defining no code is really difficult because I don't consider Excel or spreadsheets to be no code per se. Um, but because of this new moniker, things like Excel and spreadsheets get bundled into this no code movement. And I think I I think I agree with Paul. I think that it's easy to take anything that's not programming and put it into no code. But tools like Webflow, where you're able to design visual websites without coding, I think is really where the no code movement shines because of the WYSIWYG abilities. And this begs to ask the, this asks the question, well, does that mean that tools like WordPress and Squarespace and Wix are also no code? Are things like MySpace no code? Because you could create a little profile page by just having a few colors and a few titles for your name and your friends. That That's a much bigger question. And I don't think there's a clear answer. Um, so I think when we try to classify things inside this no code movement, it becomes really hard because, uh, is the output, can the output ever be code? I think they make the point that if you build something in Webflow, can the code be outputted so that it, it renders or so can there be output of HTML and CSS? And the answer is yes. And I think you want to have the ability to edit the source code at some point. Um, but certain platforms may abstract it to the point where you don't even have to see the code at all. Um, so yeah, I think even when I was building in spreadsheets, I never considered myself to be coding or any form of that. I thought it was just like, I'm building in this application called Excel and Google Sheets, and I just have to get things done. And perhaps people today would argue that, well, no, you're actually doing a little bit of coding and it's maybe part of the no movement. I don't really know. I don't, I don't see myself as really being being like a no coder per se, uh, but I think it's um, 
I think it's a good moniker, for, a good phrase to encapsulate all the people who are building things without coding. Um, and that's that's really, I think, the purpose of the conference and the purpose of this movement. So hats off to Paul and Ellen for talking about this um, this really important theme that I just spoke about at a conference. Uh, the next episode, completely unrelated, although related to, I guess, data and analytics, is the Real Time with Bill Maher podcast, one of my favorite kind of political commentary podcasts. And I don't really talk about this podcast that much because there's not many relevant things mentioned in this ep- this podcast that bring up data and Excel. But in episode 509 with Salman Rushdie, Gina McCarthy, Barney Frank, Lynette Lopez, and Noah Rothman, there was a little um, discussion by the panel around minute four, around minute four and 39. This is actually overtime, uh, not the actual full length episode, it's the overtime episode. Around minute 430, they started talking about how the current state of the economy is bad. And I don't know why, but it started with Barney Frank saying um, the economy is in a downturn, the economy is decreasing, and then someone else. I think it was Jim McCarthy or Lynette. She kind of um, agreed with Barney. And this led me to think about, uh, I think it was, I want to say it was Nassim Taleb's, um, was it I mean, Nassim Taleb's book about black swans? Or it might have been another book. Basically, the wherever this concept came from, it was from one of these guys. And the concept is, it's really easy. Oh no, this I, I think this might have come from Philip Philip Tetlock's super forecasting book, where it's very easy for for someone. They I think he calls them hedgehogs, to basically proclaim that there's some trend in the marketplace, some trend in the economy, some trend in the global, uh, in in global 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 politics, and he or she doesn't really have any hard stats to defend that uh trend so a hedgehog is someone that goes on tv and says all these things but the fox is the one that um takes into takes into account multiple different forecasts multiple different viewpoints and scenarios to come to a conclusion or come to a uh, a statement about the world and i i think i talked about super forecasting in a previous episode but what what pissed me off kind of about this episode was the fact that Barney and whoever agreed with him on the fact that the economy is decreasing is that it's in a down, it's decreasing, but relative to what it's not, it's not precise to say that the economy is decreasing because what was it? I think right when I heard that statement, I thought, well, what's the time frame you're looking at? Um, are you comparing, one period to another or are you saying that just in general are you saying that because you heard it from somewhere or you heard it from most likely um i mean i'm just hypothesizing here barney heard this from some economic report so i would argue i would ask where did that report come from and then what are the metrics they looked at and that begs the second question is metrics what metrics led you to believe that the economy is decreasing is it the gdp is it unemployment is it interest rates is it, um, I don't know, is it the number of, is it the housing report? There's so many leading indicators that could 
cause you to think that. And I think it's really dangerous for hedgehogs like this, like these people to say these things because then it becomes a soundbite that someone else hears. And then subconsciously you just think, oh, I don't really know where the fact came from, but I think the economy is decreasing because I've heard Barney say it. I've heard other people say it. And then there becomes, I mean, this is a much broader conversation about what's fact versus fake news and all that stuff. Um, but to say something is increasing or decreasing without providing the the time period and the actual metric is really dangerous. Um, but for the simplicity of a talk show, I guess it makes sense. Um, but then what's also scarier is that Barney made this statement to defend a political viewpoint. And that can be scary because now you're saying you're on one side or the other, you know, Republicans versus Democrats, because of a stat that you don't really properly defend, that you don't have proper facts to defend. Mm -hmm. And so that can become a scary world where um, you say you want to be a Democrat or you say you side with the Democrats or Republicans because of some, you know, um, what's the right word? Some uh, talking head who says that the economy is in a downturn and therefore X, Y, Z side is bad. Uh, so I, I actually wanted to do a deeper dive into that statement of the economy is in a downturn because I wanted to see, look at some real hard metrics and take in various viewpoints and see whether or not the economy truly is in a downturn and look at the time periods. Um, chances are there's some really easy research out there I can find to support this claim, uh, but I just haven't done it yet. And I, I, it was just too easy hearing that statement in this episode and if you believe in that statement, it was too easy just to make the conclusion that, okay, because of that statement, therefore, this party, I think he was referring to the Republicans, is bad. Um, so that's really kind of the dangerous leap that was made during this episode that I really wanted to call out because the data behind it um, wasn't disclosed and wasn't made public. And um, it was just scary to see how... I don't, I think maybe people like me are in a small boat, small handful of people who think about these things, but I think a majority of people just hear this from someone that's important, quote unquote, like Barney Frank, and will assume that he just knows his stuff. All right, so that ends this episode. I know it kind of ended on a little bit of a weird tangent, but uh, hopefully it makes you think about, think more about um, statements you hear in the media about um, the economy. Thank mm -hmm. you.